Hello listeners, welcome to the third episode of season 1 of Itihasa, a Indic history podcast, and you're listening to Narendra Vikram. Season 1 is all about the Vijayanagara Empire. If you haven't checked out the last two episodes already, I would highly recommend it for better context and a backstory. In today's episode, we will pick up from where we left previously. In the last episode, we understood the reasons for the Vijayanagara defeat in the Battle of Tallikottam. from a military perspective and why the Deccan Sultanate alliance had the upper hand in this episode we will dig deeper into the causes for ramaraya's diplomatic defeat that led to the formation of deccan alliance which ultimately led to his death at tallikota and ushered in the beginning of the end for the empire itself we will try to understand the geopolitical strategy of ramaraya when it came to the deccan sultanates factors that drove this strategy and how he blundered the empire away in a single battle let's start with the persian chronicler and bijapuri court historian farishta's account of the final battle between the deccan sultanate alliance and vijayanagara's ramaraya at tallikota it's important that we look at this account as not only does it depict the mischaracterization of ramaraya as a islamophobic ruler who forced the sultans into this conflict also it shows how farishta himself looks at this struggle almost 40 years after the showdown quote though the idea of a jihad against the hindus never predominated in the mind of any of the adil shahi sultans the attitude of the hindu regent ramaraya towards islam embittered ali adil shah and the other deccan sultans against vijayanagar at first ramaraya helped ahmednagar against bijapur and later bijapur against ahmednagar Behind apparent inconsistency was a desire to destroy the power of sultanates of the Deccan. Ramaraya would almost have succeeded in his ambitious design but for his insulting and arrogant attitude towards Islam. It was this threat to the very existence of Islam in the Deccan that brought the sultans together to crush him. He was no longer the enemy of an individual Muslim state but all of them. The struggle was no longer a political struggle. it was religious it was this factor that was responsible for muslim confederacy end quote the above quote by farishta is interesting because it shows two things a blatant attempt to burnish the islamic credentials of his patron sultan ibrahim adil shah ii by setting him against the backdrop of holy jihad and his observation of ramaraya's inconsistency when it comes to diplomacy with the sultanates which he tries to explain it with a baseless accusation of islamophobia all the evidence is to the contrary here like i noted in the previous episode farishta is known to be a dubious source of that age due to not just contradictions but also cooking up some accounts that stand in contrast with the witnessed actions one might ask uh, what's farishta's motive to fabricate while some amount of candy flossing by court historians is taken for granted It's important to note that Farishta was a Shia known as Persian Westerner in a native Sunni dominated court of Deccan Sultan. The Deccan Sultanate courts used to be suspects of Sunni Shia intrigues and dangerous rivalry that used to most of the times end in massacres, coups, civil wars between both the factions. So Farishta's motives need to be looked at through this lens. His patron Ibrahim Adil Shah II was a Shia turned Sunni. who weakened the Shia noble faction in favor of the Sunni faction in the court after his ascendancy it's not difficult to understand that being a court historian and also a Shia 
Ferishta had a lot to lose by not engaging in hagiographical propaganda. What better way uh, than showing your sultan fighting a holy war against unbelievers and infidels? Also, uh, in Ferishta's account, it's important to note not just the subtle undercurrent of tensions between two Muslim sects, but also the overt civilizational Hindu-Muslim tensions in early 1600s that seemed to manifest and rear its head in one of these ways. Now let's come to my initial point about Farishta's mischaracterization of Ramaraya as an Islamophobic Hindu ruler. It is important to call this out as Ramaraya was the total opposite of Islamophobic. If he were alive today, he would have been hailed by everyone across the political spectrum as a shining beacon of secularism and tolerance. In the previous episode, we had discussed how Ramaraya had inducted six Muslim commanders in his army to head crucial contingents. It's important to mention that he was not the first Vijayanagara ruler to recruit Muslims into the army. But Ramaraya certainly took it to the next level by allowing thousands of Muslims to join his army and reward them generously for their services. To understand this secular aspect of Ramaraya, we can look at his dealings with Islam and Muslims inside the Vijayanagara state. He showed as much respect for their faith as the Deccan Sultans had for their own Muslim subjects. A contemporary Muslim writer reports that, quote, Ramaraya had assigned a special place in the city of Hampi called Turakawada for residences of Muslims. In Vijayanagara, Muslims back then were called as Turakas, which is a vernacularization of the word Turk. The Muslims in Hampi were allowed by Ramaraya to sacrifice cows in spite of protests of the Brahmins and the nobles. To make it easy for his Muslim officers to salute their infidel master, a copy of the Quran was kept on a high pedestal in Ramaraya's court. He did his best to win the confidence and respect of his Muslim subjects. End quote. From this, it's pretty clear that Farishta's account of the reasons for Tallikota was an afterthought and a concoction to tarnish Ramaraya and undermine the long-standing pluralistic legacy of Vijayanagara itself. It is worth pointing out the fact that the phenomenon of Hindu-Muslim antagonism was for all practical purposes absent during most of the Vijayanagara proper period, especially after the conquest of uh, Madurai Sultanate by Bukkaraya I's son Kumara Kampana in 1378 as described in the 14th century Sanskrit poem and a classic called Madura Vijayam by Kampanna's wife Ganga Devi. Though I must also point out the fact that the 17th century Telugu ethno-historical classic Raya Vachakamu shows a clear and unmistakable evidence of an anti-Islamic sentiment. This incipient anti-Islamic orientation in South India by the closing years of the 16th century can be considered as something that was a direct result of the iconoclasm, carnage, pillage and the large-scale destruction of Hampi in 1565 after Vijayanagara's defeat at Tallikota. So there is no denying the fact that a civilizational battle between Hindu and Islamic cultures was brewing once again in South India, especially towards the end of 16th century after a long lull. But it would be extremely reductionist to look at the events leading to Tallikota purely through the Hindu-Muslim lens, which robs us of far more interesting prelude and a backstory. Tallikota was an event that didn't happen out of the blue. Rather, there was a gradual tension building up for at least 16 years preceding it. It was 
a germination rather than an explosion like how it is usually made out to be in the mainstream narratives. To better understand Ramaraya's influence in shaping of Vijayanagara's foreign policy, we have to take a quick detour to the immediate events that transpired after the death of one of the most beloved kings of South India, Sri Krishna Devaraya. In 1529, as Krishna Devaraya was preparing for a military campaign against Belgaum that was in possession of Bijapur's Adil Shah, he suddenly fell ill seriously. And on the deathbed, he nominated his younger brother, Achyuta Devaraya, instead of his own son, who was then 18 months old. Krishna Devaraya, or the Great Raya, had felt his younger brother would be an able successor in spite of all his vices. And to an extent, he was. This is where Ramaraya, who was the son-in-law of Krishna Devaraya, and by then who had also grown in stature and power in the court, plays his cards and instead anoints the dead emperor's infant son, Ramachandra, as his successor. By doing that, he had effectively announced that he was now the regent of Vijayanagara Empire. In short, he was the unofficial emperor. Some might ask, why didn't he instead usurp the throne and just anoint himself as an emperor? Now that, uh, my dear listeners, is a story that begs for a dedicated episode. Ramaraya was as wily as a fox and there's a reason why the great Krishnadevaraya had his daughter married off to him. So let's save that story for later. Coming back here, Ramaraya's ploy is quickly blunted by a significant number of the nobles at the court who refused this infant emperor regent arrangement and instead threw their lot with his successor nominated by Krishnadevaraya. At this point, the Vijayanagara nobles are split into two factions. One faction is headed by the Emperor Achyuta Devaraya's powerful brother-in-law, Salakaraju Tirumala, and the other by Ramaraya. Soon, Krishna Devaraya's infant son, Ramachandra, passes away, and Ramaraya's position is considerably weakened. It's not clear if the infant son's death was a natural one or a murder. This infant was the great Raya's second son, the first being Tirumala Raya who was supposedly poisoned when he was seven, an year after being anointed as a crown prince by the great Raya. This too has an interesting story that we will delve into when we talk about Saluva Timarasu, the prime minister of the great Raya. So after the infant son's death, Ramaraya had no choice but to bide his time waiting for an opportune moment while strengthening his own power base. Then this follows internal intrigues, rebellions, civil wars between both the factions for a while. And at around 1535, both Achutaraya and Ramaraya come to a compromise. And after which Ramaraya was comparatively calm for the rest of the Achutadevaraya's reign. Some astute listeners might wonder why on earth didn't Achutaraya, the emperor of Vijayanagara, just have Ramaraya silently poisoned or assassinated in some secret dungeon to save himself with all these headaches. A valid question, but it wouldn't do justice to answer that in a few sentences, as that question goes to the core of the Vijayanagara state. Also, it's the same reason why Ramaraya didn't usurp the throne when he had a chance after Krishnadevaraya's death. I, I promise we will get to this in a dedicated episode. In 1542, Achyuta Devaraya, the emperor, passes away. And with this, his powerful brother-in-law, Salakaraja Tirumala, tries to usurp the throne by assassinating the royal members of the Tulava ruling dynasty in a near-psychotic rampage in the palace. He also massacres some of the other nobles who were against him. 
In this palace chaos, Ramaraya, his two brothers Venkatadri Thirumalaraya, managed to slip out of the palace along with the young nephew of Krishnadevaraya, who happens to be the sole remaining member of the Tulava dynasty. The entire polity and nobility is appalled at Salakaraja Thirumala's attempt to usurp the throne by cruelly massacring the ruling dynasty in such a brazen fashion. This is too much to digest for them. And at this juncture, the widowed queens of Krishnadevaraya convinced the nobility and military to support Ramaraya's faction to bring down this depraved monster Salakaraju, who crowned himself as a king immediately the day after the bloody massacres. So with total support from the polity, the queens and the military, Ramaraya leads a blitzkrieg against Salakaraju's forces from his faction and bribes some of the army contingents who were taking his orders to abandon this crazed maniac. After neutralizing all the threats, Ramaraya enters the capital Hampi before he could head to the palace to kill the imposter king Salakaraju ends up committing suicide. In this way, in a dramatic fashion, Ramaraya ends up becoming the savior of the Vijayanagara throne. So in 1543, he anoints the young nephew of late Krishnadevaraya, Sadasevaraya, who he had helped escape the palace during the rampage as the next emperor. And with that, he also appoints himself as a regent of Vijayanagara. So in 1543, exactly 22 years before Ramaraya's head is hoisted on a spear on the plains of Tallikota, his reign as supreme ruler of Vijayanagara begins. The young emperor Sadasivaraya is a mere ceremonial head under Ramaraya's umbrella. In short, Ramaraya is emperor without a formality of wearing the crown. From this point on, we are in a better position to analyze Ramaraya's foreign policy and attitude towards the Deccan Sultanates. To understand the trajectory of Ramaraya's foreign policy, we have to first go back further in time to the year 1518. The Bahmani Sultanate that straddled what is now the states of Telangana, Karnataka and Maharashtra was figuratively on a ventilator in the ICU. At this point, the Bahmani Sultanate starts breaking apart into smaller pieces, with Bijapur already breaking away in 1490. So each piece declares itself as an independent kingdom with a new sultan and you know they, f they found a new dynasty for each of them. Now out of this chaos of disintegration of the Bahmani Sultanate comes a new order with the newly minted dynasties of Nizam Shahi of Ahmadnagar, Qutub Shahi of Golconda, Barit Shahi of Bidar, Imad Shahi of Berar, Adil Shahi of Pijapur. They are collectively known as the Deccan Sultanates. It's worth pointing out that the Bijapur Sultan engages in a misadventure that culminates in the epic battle of Raichur in 1520 against Vijayanagara Empire. And in this battle, the Bijapur Sultan Adil Shah is soundly thrashed by Krishnadevaraya's forces. We will come back to the battle of Raichur in a separate episode as it's a very important event with far-reaching implications on not just the psyche of Ramaraya and Adil Shah of Bijapur, but also on the nature of warfare in Deccan in the near future. It deserves its own episode. And once again, I promise you it's fascinating in its own right for many reasons. 
And now let's skip to 1527. The Bahmani Sultanate by now has fully disappeared and it's two years prior to the death of Sri Krishna Devaraya. Vijayanagar Empire is at its peak and a superpower. Its culture and arms cast a long shadow on not just the entire South India, but also on the five Deccan Sultanates and on the island nation of Sri Lanka. So from this point, the Deccan Sultans aren't just fighting and intriguing against each other, but each one of them is also trying their best to woo the mighty Vijayanagara empires support to topple the others. All the while fighting against Vijayanagara too whenever it was convenient to them. It's a very strange dynamic, not just between the Deccan Sultans, but also between the Sultans and Vijayanagara too. It's not a triangle love-hate story, instead a hexagon love-hate story. One can only imagine the kind of convoluted plot that comes out of it. Finally, in 1529, the death of the great Raya, Krishnadevaraya, not just triggers an internal battle in the Hampi royal palace, like we saw earlier, but also triggers a full-blown intrigue by Vijayanagara's external allies, vassals and enemies alike. This is all part and parcel of an empire's life cycle though, so nothing to be surprised here. Now that you have the context and are acquainted with the setting in which Krishnadevaraya's successor Achyutadevaraya and the ambitious son-in-law of the dead Krishnadevaraya, Ramaraya, were operating in. So now let's return to the year 1543. Just as Ramaraya's honeymoon period as a regent had started, the Sultan of Ahmednagar invites Ramaraya for a joint invasion of Bijapur, which was then allied with Sultan of Bidar. Ramaraya readily agrees to this and sends his brother Venkatadri with a large army in this joint operation, which results in both territorial and monetary gains for Vijayanagara. Three years later, in 1546, Ramaraya, with intrigue, induces his then ally Sultan of Ahmednagar to once again invade Bijapur. This time, Ramaraya offers covert support, unlike last time. Ultimately, Ahmednagar's misadventure fails badly and is repulsed. Finally, in 1549, the Bijapur Sultan is livid with anger at the covert support of Ramaraya to the aggressors against Bijapur state and constant intrigues against Bijapur. So, the Bijapur Sultan insults and expels the resident Vijayanagara ambassadors in his court and taunts Ramaraya supposedly. This insult enrages Ramaraya and he overtly asks his then ally, the Sultan of Ahmednagar, to invade Bijapur yet again, and which the Ahmednagar Sultan does with the support of Ramaraya. This results in an important Bijapuri city falling into the hands of Ahmednagar Sultan. With this, Ramaraya's insult is supposedly avenged. This battle of bloated egos, business of provoking and avenging insults will cost dearly to Ramaraya, as we will see later. It all seems very irrational, as most listeners can make out. But there is a method to both Ramaraya's and all the Deccan Sultanate's madness. Now let's jump to 1558. The current Sultan of Bijapur, Ibrahim Adil Shah I, is dead. And his son, Ashia Ali Adil Shah I, has taken the throne after successfully purging his father's Sunni legacy its power base in his court and restoring this Shia power base. The new Sultan wants to recover the territory his father lost to Abandagar previously. So he decides to go to his father's enemy, the Ramaraya, to ask him for help to acquire it back. 
so most listeners might be scratching their head by now i won't exactly blame you for that i already told you it cannot get any more convoluted than this but stick with me on this it will get even more interesting during the same time two events take place one ahmednagar has a new successor sultan hussein nizam shah and ramaraya's son dies in the capital hampi due to natural reasons so the young adil shah of bijapur uses this as an opportunity to establish friendly relations with the ramaraya he breaks his own safety protocol and rushes to hampi with a mere 100 of his bodyguards to offer his deepest condolences to the grieving ramaraya and his wife by by doing this he was actually taking a huge risk personally because he could have been captured and probably even assassinated by vijayanagara forces this act of personal offering of condolences supposedly has a good effect on ramaraya so he publicly in the royal court adopts the young adil shah as his son and with his wife ramaraya's wife proclaiming the young sultan as her own farzand which means son there might have been some genuine connection between the now old raya and the young adil shah in whom he might have seen his lost son but again that's not the important thing here there was clearly an element of real politic behind this show of public adoption by ramaraya he probably wanted to use the young sultan for his own agenda and to vijayanagara's advantage similarly the young sultan too wanted to use ramaraya to inaugurate his own rule on the right footing and crush any idea of dissent against his own ascension in the bijapuri court which i told you earlier was used to be a suspect of you know scheming and intrigues and the motives behind ramaraya's show of adoption becomes clear in 1559 when ramaraya marches along with ali adil shah to recapture the lost bijapuri city from ahmednagar which ironically was lost by young sultan's father due to ramaraya's own intrigues against bijapur so a combined force of around 100000 soldiers marched to this contested city and lay siege to it hussein nizam shah is outnumbered he retreats to his capital at ahmednagar ramaraya and adil shah chase the nizam shah even to his capital and lay siege to it and once again hussein nizam shah is forced to flee to a town called paithan on the godavari river only to be once again pursued by one of ramaraya's generals so from here the sultan nizam shah who is on the constant run sends a sos message to the sultan of berar begging for help and the berar sultan sends his general jahangir khan to relieve the siege of ahmednagar finally hussein nizam shah realizes the futility in constantly running without offering battle to the superior force and sues for peace with ramaraya now what ramaraya does at this point you have to listen and understand carefully so ramaraya who clearly was holding all the cards puts three conditions the nizam shah has to satisfy first for peace to prevail first ramaraya asks the contested city to be handed over to his rival sultan adil shah who happens to be ramaraya's ally now second he asks the berar general who came to nizam shah's rescue to be executed third and final condition is really important in my opinion ramaraya's biggest blunder his final condition is for nizam shah to personally come to ramaraya's headquarters and eat a pan the beetle nut leaf from his hand nizam shah has no choice left but to agree to all of these humiliating conditions 
especially the most humiliating one of eating pan from Ramaraya's hand that signifies abject and total surrender at his feet as a lesser mortal. Saint Shah's contempt and anger at this condition becomes very clear and evident when he goes to Ramaraya's headquarters. Here the Nizam Shah is offended at having to touch his enemy Raya. He calls for a wash basin to wash his hands. This obviously pricks the already bloated ego of Ramaraya and he mutters to his brother beside him in Kannada, If he weren't my guest, I would have had his hands cut off and hang them around my neck. Then he calls for water and Ramaraya too washes his hands. And after this drama, the Sultan hands over the keys to the fort of the contested city to Ramaraya, who promptly sends it to his now ally Adil Shah. And finally, the Sultan humiliates himself by finishing the ritual of eating the pan from Raya's hands to cement the peace treaty. And what happens next, Ramaraya clearly does not anticipate. If he did, history would have been really different. It is here that the humiliated Sultan Hussein Nizam Shah takes a vow to get back the city he had to give away. And also, he tells himself that he's going to destroy Ramaraya to avenge the humiliation. And in 1562, the Sultan Nizam Shah, who was burning with revenge, cements an alliance with his arch-rival, the Sultan of Golconda, by offering his daughter in marriage to him. Just to prove a point, Nizam Shah chooses the very contested city's fort as a marriage venue. The Sultan of Golconda and his daughter get married just out of reach of the fort's cannon. Right after the marriage celebrations, both the sultans now march on to attack the city which was in control of Adil Shah of Bijapur. Once again, Ramaraya comes to Adil Shah's rescue. Both Nizam Shah and the Golconda Sultan are forced to lift the siege of the contested city. Again, Ramaraya pursues Nizam Shah back to his capital, forcing him again to flee from there to the Junar fort. Even here, Ramaraya pursues him and lays siege to the fort in 1563. With the arrival of monsoon, plays spoils sport for Ramaraya's siege and he is forced to lift it and he heads back to Vijayanagara. On his way back to Vijayanagara, Ramaraya plunders not just the territories of Nizam Shah's ally, Golconda's several districts, but also some of the districts of his friend and ally, Adil Shah of Bijapur. At this point, even Adil Shah's patience breaks at the unprovoked attacks by his ally Ramaraya on his territories. Finally, Nizam Shah gets the moment he has been waiting for, handed to him on a silver platter. Ramaraya's arrogance had gotten the better of him and he had given the Nizam Shah a chance to drive a bench between him and his ally Adil Shah of Bijapur. The Nizam Shah seals the deal with Bijapur by offering his daughter Chand Bibi, who is a personality in her own, which we can talk about it in later. So he offers the hand of Chand Bibi in marriage to the young Adil Shah. And that basically gives birth to the grand alliance of five Deccan Sultans. The other two being Behrar and Bidar, who are like smaller states and who are bound to join the three uh, bigger powers. And this basically sets the stage for the epic battle of Talikota, which we saw in the first episode. With this, we have come full circle and seen Ramaraya's foreign policy, coupled with his rash behavior 
lead to forging of an alliance that will bring him down and with him the Vijayanagara Empire. With this we will end the third episode of Itihasa the Indic History Podcast. In the next episode we will look at Ramaraya's motivations to pursue such an irrational foreign policy that ends up being the foundation for this formidable alliance of the Deccan Sultanates which ultimately brings the Vijayanagara Empire down. If you have come this far, thank you once again for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't subscribed already, please hit the subscribe button. Feel free to leave a rating and a review or suggestions in the reviews section. Hope to see you soon in the next episode. And thank you once again for listening to Itihasa the Indic History Podcast. And this is your host Narendra Vikram signing off for the day.